Today's sermon text is Titus 2, 1 through 10. It can be found in the Bible in the rack in front of you on page 998. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to too much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. May God bless the reading of His Word. Would you pray with me this morning? Almighty God and most merciful Father, we humbly submit ourselves and fall down before you this morning, asking that the seed of your word now sown may take such deep root that neither the burning heat of persecution would cause it to wither, nor the thorny cares of this life would choke it, but that a seed sown in good ground, it may bring forth thirty, sixty, or a hundredfold, as your heavenly wisdom has appointed. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. What do you want to be when you grow up? That's a question I'm sure that uh, kids, you've probably been asked recently, adults, you were asked at one point. And there are always some inevitable leaders in the clubhouse. You'll, you'll always find kids, I think, who are saying uh, they want to be a fireman or a policeman or a doctor or an athlete. Uh, maybe a new one is a YouTube star. You don't find tons of kids saying they want to be actuaries or database administrators. And next time you follow that question up, what do you want to be when you grow up? With the question, why? Why do you want to be a fireman or a doctor or an athlete? And with that one, you'll get a variety of answers, but one of the consistent answers that you can find, and this goes from young children all the way to kids in college, even adults who are pursuing a career, you'll find the answer of personal example. The desire to pursue a particular vocation started because they knew somebody, they found somebody who was doing something that they wanted to do and they valued and saw that person. There was the teacher who was loving and kind and who helped explain a very difficult concept so that they could understand it and loved them well. It was the doctor who took care of you or a family member in a moment of great need and was kind and compassionate. There was a mom who made your home a place of rest, was a haven. 
My wife is a dentist, and when I tell people that, there's a few things that happen. One thing is I start getting text messages of the inside of people's mouths um, within moving to Birmingham in two weeks and telling people at Christ Fellowship my, that Laura was a dentist. One of our associate pastors just sent me a text with a picture of his mouth. Can you show this to Laura? I think something's up here. The second thing that often happens is I get a report of people's experiences with their own dentists. So I hear about, uh, we had some friends over for, for dinner on Thursday night, uh, some, some friends from our church, and uh, I'd known them, Laura had not met them, but, but was asking them, just uh, they were asking her, what do you do? And Laura said, I'm a dentist. And we heard about uh, one woman's lovely experience with her dentist growing up. That's what we heard about from her. On the, on the flip side, we also hear all the terrible experiences. They walk in, somebody doesn't numb them enough, they yank it out. I hate dentists. I love you, Laura. I really don't like what you do. Laura, as you can imagine, had a dentist who she loved going to. And then as she grew and people kept asking, what do you be? What do you want to, what do you want to be when you grow up? She just saw that and saw a wonderful example of somebody who took care of their patients. It was kind. And when Laura spent time with them, she said, that's something I think I could see myself doing. Her experience with her dentist made the vocation of dentistry attractive and appealing. And this morning in Titus 2, 1 through 10, I think we're going to see something similar at work. Titus 1 spoke at length about the importance of elders in the life of the church. And in Titus 2, really the camera kind of broadens out from the elders to the life of everybody in the congregation. Paul addresses the church about the importance of their own lives lived in front of others. And he tells us this. This is perhaps we want to boil this down. What's the main point that Paul is getting across in Titus 2, 1 through 10? God desires that our lives should reflect and recommend the truth of his gospel. He desires that our life would be a picture, a reflection of the life of Christ to others. And as we reflect the gospel back to others, it would be a recommendation of that kind of life. And to organize our time together in God's word, we're going to just walk through the text in that way. A life that reflects the gospel and a life that recommends his gospel. And my prayer for us this week has been that God would help each one of us, not just elders, older men, younger men, older women, younger women, everyone here to see how your life and the way that you live in front of others matters for the sake of God's kingdom. And that from that we would be encouraged to walk in faithful obedience by God's good grace. So if you're not there already, turn to Titus 2, 1 through 10, where we'll study and submit to God's word together. And just to remind you where we are in the book, remember Paul in chapter 1 gave his protege Timothy a list of the qualifications that he was to be looking for in the lives of elders in the churches on the island of Crete. And then he ends after that list of qualifications, he says, this is why you need this type of leadership. And says there are opponents in the churches outside the church is trying to do harm. And at the very end, the last thing Paul says before he comes to chapter 2 is this emphatic condemnation of their works. So look at Titus 1.16. Titus 1.16. They, the opponents, profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Okay, so the works of these opponents are detestable. They're not to be followed. And Paul then turns and does a strong contrast to Titus and paints a picture of a very different life lived 
for the sake of the gospel. Those who belong to Christ, their lives should look different from these opponents and should reflect the gospel impact on them. So look at Titus 2.1. As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The heading, and if you have an ESV, which I think the Pew Bibles are here, the heading right above that says, teach sound doctrine, and that's not a, a bad heading at all. That's what we're going to get to in verses 11 through 15. So this gospel life is attached to a right understanding of the gospel. But in these 10 verses, he's concerned with what accords with the gospel, what's fitting to a gospel-shaped life. The gospel, is you can think of it like, hey, I don't do much cooking, so if this example is not accurate, you just help me. Go, go with me. Think of a jello mold or a bunt cake tin. Okay? The gospel is like this. You pour cake batter into a jello mold, or well, no, cake batter into a bunt cake tin, jello into a jello mold, and let it sit, and what comes out is shaped like that mold. So those who follow and love Christ, the gospel content of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, as we come to know him and love him better, our lives start to look more and more like that. When you dump it out, you see the mold that was cast. And that's what's meant to happen in the lives of Christians. So Paul then goes on and he says, this is what's supposed to happen. Teach what accords, what is fitting with sound doctrine. And he addresses five specific groups of people who are present in the church at Crete. And gives instruction on what that gospel-shaped life looks like. But before we get to looking at those directly, uh, I want to give a preliminary caution. Because the easiest way to go through a list of texts like this telling you what your life should look like is to think about all of the other people who should apply this text. Or even you, you may read this and think, I know someone in these other categories who really need to do this. Or somebody else who needs to apply this, but the Holy Spirit would not want you to start there. The Holy Spirit would not want you to apply this to your parents or your kids or your neighbors or your classmates, all in an effort to avoid applying it to yourself. So it's not wrong to think about those that you can encourage and point towards godly living, but be sure to place yourself under the microscope of God's word as well. Ask the Lord to shape us more into his likeness through this text. So Paul begins here with these lists with a word to older men and a call to age well. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. You may be wondering what age falls into the category of older men versus younger men. Uh, That feels like a trap that I could walk into, so I'm just going to not walk into that. The point that Paul is making is that this is a relative age. So really, everybody kind of fits in here, older men and younger men. When, when Laura and I first walked into Christ Fellowship Church uh, nine years ago, we were carrying a car seat with our oldest daughter, Rose, in it. She was about six months old at the time, and we looked around, and we did not see another child in the room, and we felt really like we were, we were the older men and older women at Christ Fellowship Church. I had lunch last week with some members of Philadelphia and someone asked me when I graduated high school and their response was, oh, y'all are so young. (laughs) So it's kind of nice to be back in the younger man club. But whether you are older or younger, you fit in this category. This list is not meant to go to other places. You have to say older men are this age to this age and I can ignore that. Paul wants everyone in the church to see themselves in here somewhere. So for older men, they should be examples in the congregation of spiritual health 
and vitality. They're not to be impulsive, as is often the case with boys or younger men. They're, they're to said to be sober-minded, self-controlled, thinking well and following those actions well. We want older men to be people who we can point our boys to and say, if you want to know what it looks like to be a man of God, follow that guy. Go ask him what self-control in his life looked like at this point and at this point and even now. We want that for our boys. In fact, this list is really not that far removed from the list of elders in chapter 1, except for one distinctive note here in the encouragement to steadfastness, the last thing that Paul calls them towards. American culture generally views aging as a problem to be overcome. It's something that you try to fight against with every fiber of your being instead of any opportunity to be embraced. And to a degree that makes sense. Nobody likes to see themselves decline. It's hard to see things that once were very easy for you become harder and more frustrating. But older men, the word of the Lord from Paul is don't grow weary in doing good. Don't give up. Remember the word from James, the brother of Jesus. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So if aging for you feels like a trial, don't give up. Keep going. Paul then turns to give a word to older women about the joy of teaching and training others. Look at the first part of verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Older women ought to recognize that their their whole lives are lived before the face of God, so their actions are to be lived reverential. The the Greek word for slanderers here is the same word that's translated uh, the devil in other places. One who slanders and speaks against slandering belongs into the domain of the enemy. And so these women are not backbiting. They're not besmirching the reputation of others. And they're not slaves to much wine. It's not a command given to them because they're especially susceptible to this, but perhaps they're in homes more where they have more access. And older women are told to be slaves to none but Christ. Now, look at the end of verse 3. And this word to older women turns from their behavior and their character to their teaching, what we might call their mentoring. Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. We're going to turn and look to see how this applies to younger women in just a moment, but see the important role here. As you look at this text, see the important role here that God has given older women in the life of his church. What we have pictured here is spiritual formation of others through relational imitation, growing in godliness, discipleship through a shared life and shared wisdom from one generation to another. And that is just the natural way that God has built and intended that we would learn to follow Jesus, not in a vacuum, but learning from others. So last week in our discussion about elders, we we talked about some ways that the text might particularly challenge men, the ways that men should ask themselves, do I aspire to this? And this week, the text holds out a specific challenge for women in the church. So sisters in Christ, who is it that you are seeking to disciple? 
It is not merely the elders who are called to teach. But might it be that God has gifted you, dear sisters, to teach sound doctrine and to show what accords with that doctrine to younger women in the church. Or think of the many children who right now are building a foundation that, Lord willing, will last them a lifetime. And I want to quickly just silence a, a lie that I think Satan would like for you to believe. I think he would have you believe that because there might be people who are better at this than you, that you shouldn't be doing it. The lie is this, the woman sitting by me or the one in my home fellowship, the one whose children seem to never utter a rebellious word, she's the one who should be teaching. I'm not the best, so I really just shouldn't be doing this. Oh, friends, if we were just waiting on the perfect people to teach, then we would just be an empty church and have no one left. The scriptures are clear that if you are following Jesus, you have something to offer. You have ways that you can teach. And we're all learning as well. And so maybe there are things that you invite people into your home or into your life and they see and you say, you know what? I, I want you to follow me because I'm imitating Christ in this way. You'll probably also have some times where you may not want them to follow you exactly, but what you get to show then is what repentance looks like and what peacemaking looks like. Sisters, God is not looking for the perfect woman to disciple younger women. God is looking for faithful daughters of Christ who are willing to follow him and invite others into their life. Don't believe the lie that you're incapable or that God would not use you. He would delight to do that. Paul's word to these older women is to teach what is good and the content then of what they are teaching is there in verses four through five that we just read. And this word to older women is also obviously a word to younger women since they're to be trained in this. And this word to them is about the high service that God has given them. And these are the verses that have led some people to look at me when I tell them I'm teaching through Titus and they ask if I really am ready to step into some choppy waters just in week two. There's clearly a bent towards home life in these verses, an emphasis on the domestic relationships of marriage and childbearing. And that's natural and beautiful for many. But for others who read this, they say, what an antiquated thought. For others who read this, this is a painful reminder, perhaps, of something that they actually really desire, but that God has not given to them in in his time. So I, I want to... At the outset, just look at two errors, two ways of addressing these verses that I think are, are wrong and that I want us to avoid as we step into them. One is to make these texts say less than they do. And what that looks like is uh, ignoring the domestic bent in these texts or appealing to these and saying these are culturally time bound. They're commands that applied then, but today they have nothing to say to us. I think that's making the text actually say less than what it's trying to say, going below the line of the text. And the second error is to make these texts say more than they do, which can be treating these verses as if this is everything that the Bible says about womanhood. Or you focus only on certain areas and overlook the ways Paul calls all women, regardless of marital status, to show godly character. So we want to just stay on the line. We want to chain ourselves to this text to not go above it and require more than what it says, to not know, go below it and blunt its edge so that we would not allow it to challenge maybe some of our cultural assumptions. And so what, what is clear here in the commands that Paul gives? 
Well, Paul tells us very clearly that women should have godly character. There's nothing drastically controversial in that. In their conduct, they're to be self-controlled. This is the second time he's used that word. This is maybe the characteristic of all people in this list. They're to be self-controlled. They're to be pure, which in this context, they should at least have faithfulness towards their husbands and encouragement towards chastity if they're single. And they're to be models of kindness. All women, whether that is to the child sitting on your lap or to the cashier in the marketplace. But beyond their character, Paul tells us here that women who are married and have children should embrace their God-given responsibilities in their homes. They are to love their husbands and children. And this is something that they're actually taught by the older women. The love that's expressed here is not something they said, I, just, I simply fell into this kind of love, it naturally happened. Maybe, maybe it does, but they're actually a way to grow in that, to get better at that. And older women are training the younger women in thinking through that kind of selfless love for their husbands, for their children. Beyond that, they're called to be working at home. Commentator Robert Yarbrough, I thought was helpful here, says this is a command not to stay cooped up at home, but to exercise managerial gifts and skills for the family's sake. This is skilled work. This is the excellent wife of Proverbs 31. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. And here again, we don't want to go above the line. We don't want to make the say more than it should. Paul is not saying here that women must only work in their homes. Remember the same excellent wife of Proverbs 31. Right? She looks well to the ways of her household And she also considers a field and buys it. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Paul himself worked alongside Aquila and his wife Priscilla, tent makers, the same trade as Paul in advancing the gospel through their their work. He evangelized and stayed in the home of Lydia, the seller of purple goods. The call to train young women and working at home does not mean that she cannot or does not work outside the home. It does mean, though, that whether she works outside the home or not, she doesn't shirk her responsibility. She doesn't abandon responsibilities to care for her home and for those who live in it. And lastly, Paul is telling wives to be submissive to their own husbands. This paragraph we've said is dedicated in many ways to reflecting a picture of the gospel, and this reminds us, should bring back to mind that one of the clearest portraits of the gospel the Lord has given us in this life is a loving, Christ-centered marriage. Remember, this is what Paul teaches so clearly elsewhere in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own, own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Wives are called to be an example for all Christians. Not just younger women, but for all Christians on what it looks like to love and respond in loving submission to Christ. That's what Paul is telling them. And here, let me just pause briefly and address a place where we have sometimes, tragically, 
others, some of us have not stuck to this text. Paul is telling wives to willingly give their submission to husbands. He does not anywhere tell husbands to force their wives to submit. The love that Christ shows his people, think back to Ephesians 5 and what the husband is meant to picture to the watching world. The love that Christ shows is selfless and self-giving. It is cross-shaped. There is no hint or sa- of savagery or abusiveness towards his bride. And men who take a text like this and go on to coerce submission from their wives are an affront to this picture. They take a picture of the gospel and they paint over it. So men, if that describes your marriage, the call to you this morning is to repent. And women, if that describes your marriage, come find one of your elders or a trusted woman of the church in this congregation to talk to. It is a beautiful thing for wives to willingly give their submission to husbands. Wives and moms here this morning, your calling at home, the reason I say this is a high calling, this is high and holy. This is a, a dedicated calling that Lord has placed in you. Uh, it's common. I've, uh, I've met many people this past week. Uh, Laura has met many people. And one of the common questions is, what do you do? And by that, we mean usually what, what's your job, your vocation. And occasionally I, I've heard uh, something like, I'm, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. And to that I want to say, just a stay-at-home mom? Mercy, that is a high calling. That is, are you kidding me? That's a hard work. Uh, my wife, I said, is a dentist. And when, she, when I was in school, we had our first child. We were in, living in Chicago at the time. I was in school and it worked out on her first day back to work from her maternity leave. I had no classes. I got to keep Rose. And I had high expectations for how our day was going to go. It was going to be the best day ever with this two-month-old. Um, and Laura got home that evening, and I was pacing and bouncing a screaming Rose. And I think my first words were, I love her so much, but please take her. It's hard. But this calling is is Holy. Please never feel like you're less than because you're a stay-at-home mom or you're a homemaker in your house. This is a godly and high honor to care for your family. I know many of you are working wives and moms, and some of you may even feel a little mom guilt for desiring or even enjoying work outside of your homes. And I certainly don't think that's the intent of this text. Having joy in your work is not a bad thing. It's a great thing. I think instead that this text would tell you not to view your responsibilities at home as just your side gig. The thing that you do only when you just have a little bit of time or the thing that gets no attention whatsoever. Don't neglect the calling that you have in your house. And finally, to single women who are here. Paul here is not saying that younger women must be married. Remember we said last week he's not saying that all elders must be married or have children. Singleness it was a different thing in first century Greece than it is in 21st century America. Most young women of marriageable age at this time and in this place were married. But let me just give you two ways, two quick ways to think about applying this text if you're a single woman here. First, if you, if you read these and you fixate on the domestic life, don't let your eyes and your heart just glaze over those calls to godly character that are here. God delights in your life being kind and pure self-controlled. Those are not just background notes to be ignored in calls to work at home. And secondly, you have things to learn, yes, but you also have things to give and things to teach. 
One of the greatest blessings in my family's life over the past eight years or so that we've been in Birmingham is having some single women be deeply involved in our family life. Some of them are now married, some of them are still single, but all of them have helped us to to love the Lord more. I've got to watch them learn from Laura and even encourage Laura in difficult seasons in her life. They have, they have taught, uh, they've loved our children well. It has been a blessing to our family. So single women, if, if you think I'm left out and I'm just kind of not here, I'll tell you that you have a vital role in the life of God's people. We want you in our lives and our families. Paul turns from the young women here to give a word to younger men to be self-controlled. Short, sweet, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's enough. Just get them to do that and you'll be doing really well. And this short command summarizes in many ways the commands that he's given throughout the text. It's the third time we've seen self-control mentioned here. It's so, so important in the lives of God's people. And this to younger men, to younger men in this room, uh, it is not uncommon And it's actually probably celebrated today that young men would have a time when they indulge in fleshly desires. Young men's time is when they do kind of what they want. And then when they're older, they can get serious about living godly lives. We have phrases like just just sowing is wild oats and just fooling around. But friends, the Bible paints a very different picture of what a young man's life should look like. Self-control. Young brothers, is not God trying to spoil your fun. It is God protecting you. It is God protecting you from sin and sorrow that can last with you for a lifetime. So take it on the words of an older man, a medium man maybe. And many brothers in this church, especially kids, youth, young guys in high school and middle school. Many of us would tell you that we wish we exercised more self-control when we were younger men. It is vital. God is wanting to you to avoid pain and sin and sorrow. Strive for self-control. Prize it and run after it. As he's writing about these younger men, Paul turns and gives a word to Titus to be a needed example in verses 7 through 8. Verse 7, show yourself, in all, Titus, in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Titus himself is likely a younger man. And being a younger man does not mean that he only has something to learn, but something to teach. This is similar to what Paul tells his co-worker Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in uh, in love, in faith, in purity. So in his life, Titus is meant to be an example. And then in his teaching, he's supposed to teach what is sound or healthy. And then he's supposed to teach that the right way. So not only what you say matters, but how you say it matters. He's not to say it so that he would seek out gain. He's not to be berating and belittling his hearers. He's had to have integrity. And his life and his teaching are to match up so that it makes sense when he says, when he commands these things, that people would not scorn him. And this note to Titus, I think, really highlights a thread that you see throughout this list. If you want to be a plumber, you find a plumber and you apprentice with him. Uh, If you want to be a nurse, then you have to do a preceptorship. You go around and spend time around other nurses and see what they're doing. If you want to be a teacher, you have to do student teaching. So why would we treat 
discipleship and the way of Christ to look any differently than this. And this is, in fact, one of the beautiful things about a local church that is committed to one another in loving and following Christ together. You can get lots of information from personal Bible study in your home. I hope you do. You can get lots of information from sermons. You can listen to podcasts and get lots of great stuff. But the kind of life-on-life instruction encouraged here requires proximity, being together, and it requires time. And it's one of the reasons that Jesus didn't just do like an information download, something like the Matrix that just happens with his disciples. Mark 3.14, he says, He appointed twelve whom he named apostles so that they might be with him. And that is what God gives us in his church. A group of brothers and sisters in Christ, older and younger, coming together regularly to teach and hear God's word. To be shaped by that word and then demonstrate that word in action as we teach one another and learn from one another. So if you're here and uh, you're visiting this morning, we are very glad you're here. You're welcome to this church. There is no better place to be on a Sunday morning than worshiping with God's people. But my encouragement for you, if you're just visiting, is to not just stay on the periphery of the church, to just kind of dance around the edges. Come for information and just assume that's all you need. We want you, friend, to belong, to come and to disciple others as the Lord would have you and to be discipled by others. There's one final word that Paul gives here, and it's a word to bond servants, that they are to be a delightful display of the truth of God's doctrine. Look at verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, Paul is not, as some have falsely claimed, requiring or promoting slavery as an institution. He's instead, again, just addressing a current situation in Crete and showing what life in this situation looks like. There are estimates of 30 to 40 percent of the population in the ancient Greco-Roman cultures around this time were slaves. And so in the churches, you would have bond servants worshiping alongside free men and free women. And Paul tells these brothers and sisters that they too have a part to play in in displaying a gospel-shaped life and how they respond to their masters. These bondservants are not to rationalize their sin based upon their position in life. How easy it may be, how easy it may be even today to say, you know what, I'm not at the top, I'm kind of down here and nobody pays attention to me. And so the thing that I can do, I I can just kind of take a little bit off the top, I can pilfer. I can speak disrespectfully to those or about those who are over me. Paul says, don't do that. And beyond that, he says, don't not just do, don't do what is wrong, but do what is pleasing. Take positive action. And while first century servitude is certainly distinct in many ways from working life today, I think we can and should apply this to ourselves. So adults, those of you who do work, do people at your office say that you are, are you, are, when you look at yourself, are you a different person? in your office than you are here on a Sunday morning? Or maybe it's easiest to look like a Christian, to put on something that is nice. But if you told your coworkers that you go to church, do they look at you kind of surprised by that? Kids, do you speak to and about your teachers and your coaches with respect and with kindness? Are you looking for ways not just to get by, but to actually please those around you? 
You may think, if you're in that category, you may think, I will have a better opportunity to show Christ-likeness when I'm in charge, when I have some authority. But the Bible is very clear that regardless of your gender, or of your age, or of your social status, everyone who follows Christ has a high calling of reflecting the gospel to those around us, and even discipling others who want to look more like Christ themselves. Our lives should reflect the gospel. And that gospel-shaped reflection actually has a purpose in the church of discipling one another, but it also has an evangelistic component as well. Our lives not only reflect the gospel, but they should recommend the gospel to others. Okay, so look back at verses 1 through 10, and we said this is teaching that accords, that is fit with sound doctrine. But look at some of the purpose statements that Paul uses, where he says the words that or so that. So at the end of verse 5, we do this, that the word of God may not be reviled. The end of verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. It's there at the end of verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. I just want to talk about two things that come from looking at these. First, people are watching you. People are watching you. In 1993, Nike released a commercial featuring my hometown hero, Charles Barkley. I'm from Leeds. He grew up just down the road a ways. And in it, Barkley says, I am not a role model. I am not paid to be a role model. I'm paid to wreak havoc on the basketball court. Parents should be role models. Just because I can dunk a basketball doesn't mean I should raise your kids. Now, to a certain extent, the round mound of rebound has a point We should want parents raising kids, not just people outside of our homes. But this idea that that he can decide whether he wants to be a role model or not just like flipping a switch is false. That's not up to him. And actually, a friend of his, a fellow all-star, Carl Malone, responded in uh, an essay in Sports Illustrated that was addressed to Barkley. He writes and says, "Uh, we don't choose to be role models. We are chosen. Our only choice is whether to be a good role model or a bad one. Now, that makes sense if you live a life that where you play basketball professionally and people are always watching you. But the reality is, is that we are all being watched. Even in this list, you would think that the people who are being watched, the people who Paul is saying, you want to make sure you're living a godly life because people are looking at you. You would think that would be maybe the older men, the older women. It's actually all three of the other groups are who he attaches these phrases to. It's the younger women, the younger men, Titus, the bondservants. Paul says, people are watching you, and they're making decisions based on watching you, what they think about the God that you claim to follow. And if that's the case, then the question follows, is your life attracting people to or turning them away from the gospel? William Toms, a 19th century British writer, put it this way. Be careful how you live. You may be the only Bible some person ever reads. They may never step foot into a church. But if they hear that you're a Christian, they will make decisions and think about what you say you believe based on how you live. 
And that's what's happening in Crete, right? Christianity here is relatively new. And Paul knows that these new Christians are going to have people just watching them and scrutinizing them and asking, what is it about this Jesus they say they follow? Does, it, does he actually have some sort of impact on their life? And at the very least, Paul does not want their conduct to bring shame and reproach upon the name of Jesus. And the sad reality is that there are people who have never considered the claims of Christ seriously because of the foolishness of some people who claim to be his people. And that might even be you, friend. Maybe you don't know any examples of how Christ has changed people. And worse yet, you may say that the people who have hurt me most deeply in my life are people who claimed to follow Christ. They're the ones who hurled the words that hurt the most or threatened violence. And if that is you, then I'm sorry. There are some, even like we read in Titus 1, some who would claim to know God and would claim to stand as representatives of Christ. And we're told in Titus that they're actually not Christians. They deny him with their works. But even for those of us who are followers of Christ, we are still struggling and fighting against sin, flesh, and the devil with all our might. And those enemies delight in our failure. And my invitation to you, if you are here and you say, I, I, we, we have a friend uh, who, who said, I don't, I don't know Christianity seriously because I've not seen God's people live like it's real. I've just been hurt too many times. And if that's you, then I have two just invitations. And one of them is just to stick around this church and to watch their interactions. And I know that puts the members of Philadelphia Baptist Church on the hook, but that's just what this passage would have us do. And I hope that as you observe their lives, as you see their interactions, the way they care for one another, the way they honor each other in their marriage, the way they love and raise children, the way they include people from different walks of life in their own lives, that that, that would do reconstructive surgery on how you view Jesus. And the other invitation I would tell you is to, to ultimately, we, we don't want you just to look at us. We want to be like stained glass that you look through and see, ultimately, a picture of Christ. We are meant to reflect him. And when we fail, we should be the first to point out that it is by his grace that we stand. We are not saved. We are not perfect. We don't do this all by ourselves. It is he who has saved us and who is transforming us. And if that is you, I, if, you are, uh, if you want to know what this Jesus is like, I would love to talk to you afterwards. You can find me. Find any Christian in this room. We would love to talk to you about a true portrait of Christ found in the scripture and help you to know him today. We want our lives to be such that even if people disagree with our message, if if what we say is offensive to them, they won't dismiss us because of hypocrisy or conduct that is shameful. But we should desire to go even beyond this. We should desire, as Paul says, that our lives would adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. The ultimate point of this is not our lives, but that, or rather, whom to which our lives point. So your work and your marriage and your life in this church, it's like, it's like a well-chosen frame hanging around a piece of art in an art gallery. We really don't want people to spend much time looking at the frame. We want the frame just to draw eyes into the portrait of Jesus. We merely want to make that portrait all the more attractive with our lives. 
On Thursday afternoon this past week, uh, Garrett Kell is a, a pastor that I respect a lot in Virginia. He posted a picture of himself with an older gentleman, and he, he wrote this. This is Bob. This morning he went to be with Jesus. Bob was not famous. He was never a keynote speaker at a conference. He wrote no books or blogs and had no followers on social media. But Bob is a gospel hero. He was my FCA leader in high school when I was far from God. Bob endured my ruthless questioning and off-color jokes because he loved Jesus and wanted me to love him too. Bob's love was relentless. He kept praying and witnessing. Bob never gave up on me. And for that, I'm eternally grateful. God used Bob to help me see the grace of Jesus. And I have no doubt that today Bob is in glory with the one his soul loved. I'm eager to see him again when the Lord calls me home. But until then, I pray I can emulate the ministry of this godly man. Thanks, Bob. I love you, brother. Friends, there, there are many different kinds of legacy that we can leave. But that is the kind of legacy that the Lord desires. A life that reflects the character of God to a watching world. And that recommends the gospel from one generation to another and another and another. Until the day we see him face to face. Let's ask the Lord now to help us in that work as we pray. Lord, we thank you for the grace that you have poured out on us in Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we are conformed more into his image, we pray that the picture that this church and that our lives paint would be true to who he is and what he has done for us. We pray, Lord, that as people see us love and care for one another, that that would be an attraction to the gospel. That you would draw people to yourself by the strange way that people from different walks of life who have nothing in common but Jesus love and care for one another. So make it so here. Keep us steadfast until that day we see you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.